<laughs> you okay? I always find this an interesting night to be speaking because in so many ways it feels like it should be the beginning of the retreat. And I guess in so many ways it really is the beginning of the retreat <laughs> in its own way. So I want to talk tonight, of course, about bringing the practice out into our lives. There was a, a time when I was, I was having a, like a dialogue with this psychiatrist friend of mine in New York City, and it's very funny now looking back at it because it seems like such a silly conversation we were having, but what we were talking about was what might be considered the single most healing element in the psychotherapeutic relationship, as though there were just one, which is why it seems kind of silly. But anyway, that's what we were talking about. And we discussed methodologies and systems of thought, and at one point he looked at me, and in his words, he said, if you put any good psychotherapist up against the wall, they'd be forced to admit that it's love. It's the love in the room that's the single most healing element. And I had one of those experiences, you know, you just hear these words come out of your mouth and you think, who said that? (laughs) So what I heard come out of my mouth was, well, for all we know, the single most healing element in the psychotherapeutic relationship is the fact that someone showed up for their appointment. And even though it was a kind of blurt, as I looked at it, I thought, you know, there's truth in that that we get out of bed, that we're willing to try, that we can take a risk, that we hold that sense of possibility intact, that we don't feel imprisoned, totally trapped by the circumstances of our lives. We have a kind of vision of change and, and the sense of possibility that is inherent in change. All of that, of course, I would call faith. It just so happened that my book on faith came out um, last August on my birthday, and the psychiatrist came to the reading. So in his honor, I told that story. And then he came up to me at the end to have a book signed, and he said to me, you're wrong, it's love. (laughs) So I took the book and I put in giant letters, it's love, exclamation point, exclamation point. And then he came to my birthday party. So about two hours later, he came up to me at the birthday party and he said, I've been thinking about it all night, and you're right. (laughs) He said, it really is faith. So I said, well, give me back the book, you know, and I'll resign it. But even though it was a blurt, there is something to that that I think we need to honor about ourselves. That willingness to try, that openness, the courage. It's not a small thing. It reminds me in a way of one of my meditation teachers saying that the most important moment of our meditation practice is the moment that we sit down to do it. Because in that moment we are saying something about caring about ourselves, about not feeling trapped, about recognizing we are stepping into the unknown. It's a very profound moment, the moment we sit down to do it. And what ensues from that will always change. There are times when our minds are very concentrated and that sense of the energy having gathered together the wholeness of our being, the access to different altered states of consciousness, to fantastic experiences, it's very strong. And there are times when concentration is pretty weak. We are flooded with turmoil, with thoughts, with hindrances, all kinds of things going on. But no matter which of those is true, we can still be mindful, and that is the essential point. I once taught a six-week series of meditation classes in New York City um, in this beautiful Tibetan center that, strangely, you couldn't get to by entering the front of the building. You had to walk all the way around the back of the building, down this 
kind of strange alleyway, up this flight of stairs, and then you were there in this beautiful room. And it was the very first night of the series, and so I gave the first instruction that we often do, which is sit and listen to sound. And that instant I said that, some guy came into the alleyway and started screaming obscenities. You know, he just like screamed out someone's name and a whole long list of obscenities and someone else's name and a whole long list of obscenities. And I was sitting there thinking, how many people does he know, you know? <laughs> like, and of course, everyone was completely hysterical. You know, we just sat and then I rang the bell at the end and I said, you know, it's funny. I give that instruction in Barry, Massachusetts and you hear like the sounds, a little bird chirping, you know, and... <laughs> You hear the wind rustling through the leaves, and you give that instruction in downtown Manhattan, you don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> but really, we never know what's going to happen. We can have every condition set as far as we can manage, and something will shift. You can be sitting in your closet with earphones on, total climate control so that you're not uncomfortable in any way. And then that errant thought will come and it just won't go away. We see that conditions are constantly changing outside of our control. We want to practice. We want something that is a refuge. We want something we can rely on in any condition not just when things are beautiful, not just when we can concentrate, not just when we're not upset about something and we're filled with peace and joy, but really a practice for life. And since life is everything, we need a quality of mind that can accompany us anywhere without restriction, without confinement, without distortion, and that's mindfulness. So even though the the benefits and the power of concentration are quite considerable. What is essential, it seems, for freedom is mindfulness. And if we remember that mindfulness can go anywhere, we can be mindful of those beautiful, calm, quiet states. And we can be mindful of our terror and our anguish. We can be mindful of lovely feelings in the body and we can be mindful of pain as well. The mindfulness itself, the nature of the mindfulness is not going to change. It can go anywhere. And so it really is the basis of freedom. And that's how we are able to use any experience. Instead of saying, as is so easy to say, well, I couldn't meditate, I was too tired. Or, I couldn't meditate, I was too upset. Or, I couldn't meditate, you know, it was, it was just, I was too restless. We realize that there is no set of conditions that forms that boundary. So that we have the only appropriate conditions under which we can meditate, and then we have everything else that happens. That's freedom. There's a a story in the Tibetan tradition about a a bandit, a thief, who went on his way stealing for quite some time, and then he was filled with terrible remorse. And he went to a great meditation teacher and asked for something that might help him. But at the same time, he didn't really have any confidence that, that he could change. So the teacher said to him, what are you good at? And the bandit said, I'm not good at anything. The teacher said, well, you must be good at something. So the bandit said, well, I guess I'm good at stealing. So the teacher said, good. Take that talent for stealing and, as he put it, you know, dissolve it in the sky of emptiness. And so, of course, the bandit did that. And as these stories end so happily, he became fully enlightened and became a great teacher. What it means is that the the ultimate truth of any experience, that it's changing, it's transitory, 
There's a, a transparency, a lack of solidity. That's true for everything. And so whether we're looking at something glorious and wonderful or we're looking at something unwelcome, undesirable, if we look deeply enough, we will see the same characteristics of life. This is what Steve was talking about last night. And so anything can serve as the vehicle for a greater connection to life, a greater sense of being connected, woven into the greater picture of life because we're seeing the truth. There's a saying in the Chinese tradition, if you want to understand the nature of water, look at the waves. So we look at the waves and we look deeply enough, we will see the nature of water. That's how we practice. That's why any experience is all right because it can all reveal to us what we need to learn to be free. And that is awfully difficult to remember or to believe or to trust. The most common pattern people have when they leave a retreat is to be hooked on that sense of concentration and all the wonderful feelings that ensue. So you go home and you sit, and maybe you're quite concentrated, and it feels wonderful, and you think, good, this is really great, you know, I'm going to do this forever. And then you sit the next day, and it still feels really good, and then you sit the next day, and it still feels really good, and then you sit the next day, (laughs) and you just can't concentrate. You're achy, and restless, and You have those nagging thoughts and you feel sleepy and you feel bored. Very often at that point, we begin judging, we begin evaluating. Well, you know, I don't know if you can really do this on a work day. I think, you know, what I'll do is I won't sit for the rest of the week and I'll sit all day on Saturday. (laughs) And then I'll pick up my momentum again. It'll really strengthen and, and then you know, my sitting will be fine. It'll feel really good. Maybe we sit all day on Saturday or maybe we don't. But even if we do, maybe we've just entered a kind of period where we're not feeling very serene in our practice. And then you think, well, you know, I'm not sure this stuff works in life. You know, maybe you have to be on retreat to to be able to do this or, or whatever it might be. When I was living in India, I wasn't always sitting, of course, in retreat. You know, I was living sometimes. And I had quite a difficult time maintaining a daily practice because when I sat and it felt good, I'd think, oh, good. I'm going to live the entire rest of my life here feeling this good. And when I sat and it didn't feel so good, I'd stand up, I'd give up. I'd feel defeated. So I went to see one of our teachers, this man named Manindra, describing this pattern to him, and he gave me a priceless piece of advice. He said, for you, just put your body there. He said, every day, just put your body there. Some days it's going to feel one way, other days it's going to feel another. You just have to do it. The moment you sit down to do it is the most important moment because you're saying something very profound in that moment. And the rest, it's really kind of a mystery. It just is. Another one of my early teachers used this example. He likened meditation practice to trying to uh, split a piece of wood with an axe. He said, we hit it 99 times, nothing happens. We hit it the 100th time, it breaks open. Mostly, we then start evaluating. What did I do differently the hundredth time that made it finally work? Was I holding the axe differently? Was my stance different? What was different? But really, as this teacher went on to elaborate, every single one of those blows weakened the fiber of the wood. And it took that to come to the hundredth one. Of course, it doesn't feel very good, you know, number 28, number 29, number 30, nothing's happening. 
but something is happening. And I would actually change that illustration now more in, in a kind of recognition that the breakthrough comes not even just from the mechanical act of weakening the fiber of the wood, but it comes from our heartfelt effort. It comes from the fact that we are trying. It comes from the fact that we're open. It's our endeavor, our sense of humor, our patience, our love, our compassion, our aspiration. All of that is the breakthrough, not the wood. And there are so many times where we can't tell what's happening. I know many of you have heard me tell the story about when we first began our center, the Insight Meditation Society, how within a month we received two letters that were remarkable for how they were addressed. The first, instead of being addressed to the Insight Meditation Society, was addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. (laughs) And that was my favorite for a very long time because I used to look at that envelope and think, what were they thinking, you know? (laughs) It was so interesting. And so culturally normative, you know, if it doesn't happen instantly, it's not worth it. And the other letter, which is my current favorite, was addressed to the Hindsight Meditation Society. (laughs) I am really a giant proponent of the Hindsight Meditation Society. (laughs) Because there have been, you know, as I've talked about in lots of afternoons here, you know, there have been so many times in my practice where at the time I couldn't see that anything was happening only to look back later and see, oh, you know, that did provide the platform for this other thing to happen, or that really hurt. That was really difficult. But now, looking back, I see that that opened me in some way and prepared me for this next thing. And we see it in life, too. How many times do we seek to help somebody or or make a contribution or or create change in this world and really not know at the time. Whereas if we're lucky, we can look back and say, oh, isn't that odd? That planted a seed that led to this and that went off to that and that rippled out to that. And who would have thought, you know, that it would come around here? So the Hindsight Meditation Society is a very important thing. The most important thing is that offering of our hearts. It's the participation. It's realizing that the promise of spiritual life, you know, to not be driven by the habits of our mind, to have a greater sense of love and compassion for ourselves and for others, to be aware, to be awake instead of half asleep, that promise doesn't just exist for others. It exists for ourselves as well. That's what we're saying in the moment we sit down to do it. It's a completely inclusive invitation. But our work is to make that real. When I first went to India, as I think I mentioned, I was a college student at the State University of New York at Buffalo who grabbed the first opportunity to leave (laughs) in an independent study program. And I thought, you know, I had studied some Buddhism in college, and um, I very much wanted to learn how to meditate. So that was my proposal, was to go to India and learn how to meditate. But I thought I really understood all about Buddhism. You know, I'd written term papers on it and had midterm exams on different things. and, And when I sat down to meditate, I realized I didn't know anything. And that's a very important feeling. We can be so highly trained to imagine that a theoretical mastery or even a great respect or reverence for something means that we have imbued a living spirit with it, and we haven't necessarily. That's why making it real, the very practical application of these qualities, these skills, these strengths of mind, toward all of our experience, pleasant, painful, and neutral. That's what it's about. And that's why 
many meditation teachers will suggest that you really do try to have a daily sitting practice. And again, some days it will feel glorious and some days it will feel like a colossal waste of time. But you're bringing something to life each day instead of holding it in a more arid sort of um, abstract sense. That makes it more challenging, it makes it more humbling, and it makes it vital. It makes it, it, makes it real. When I went to India and sat in those early retreats, the teacher, Goenka, would often speak about this particular teaching of the Buddhas, which is called the Wheel of Dependent Origination, many elements of which have been talked about in this retreat. To put it in way oversimplified terms, the Buddha said that every moment of our lives we experience the world in one of six ways, through seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and through what is called the mind door, through thoughts and images and emotions and so on. Every moment of life we are experiencing the world in one of these six ways. And he went on to say that every moment is perceived by us to be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Whether sight or sound or smell or taste or whatever it is, for a whole variety of different conditions is felt by us to be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then the Buddha went on to say that our conditioned tendency when that experience is pleasant, of course, is to grab it, to hold on, to seize it, as though we could stop it from ever changing. Our conditioned tendency when that experience is unpleasant is to be filled with fear or anger, as though we should have been able to stop it, shame, you know, to strike out against it, to want to separate from it as though we could control it. And our conditioned tendency when the experience is neutral, it's just kind of ordinary, is to go to sleep. It's to numb out, blank out, disconnect, go somewhere else, fog out, just to go to sleep. The Buddha went on in this teaching to say that we can fully experience the pleasure of that moment without adding that extra thing that is trying to hold it, that's afraid of change. And he said, we can fully experience the pain of something without adding the fear and the anger, which only makes it so much worse and is a direct defiance to how things actually are. We can't control the unfolding of life. And he said we can actually wake up when things are neutral. We can connect. We can lose that that sense of craving for intensity all the time, of pleasure and pain, to know that we're alive. That's mindfulness. It's being aware without adding, grasping, aversion, or delusion. It's the very definition of mindfulness. And so the the Buddha said, right in the middle of that experience of pleasure, instead of being bound to the habits of mind, we can be free. And right in the middle of that experience of pain, we can be free. And we actually can as well when things are just neutral, just ordinary. So that's the teaching of dependent origination. And Goenka was was speaking about this. So I was sitting and had this really kind of amazing inner dialogue going on as I would hear Goenka describe an element of that teaching and I would think, wow, you know, that is so inspiring. It's so profound. I bet I was a Buddhist in a previous life because, you know, this is just resonating so strongly with me. If only I could get rid of this knee pain, I bet I could get enlightened really quickly. And then he would go on and expound in some other elaboration of the teaching. And I think, that is so amazing. You know, how can I understand this so well? You know, I know I could get enlightened by the end of this retreat if I could only get rid of this knee pain. And, <laughs> and he would go on and I would think, well, you know, 
I heard about this yoga ashram down in South India. Maybe if I go there, you know, I can stretch out my body enough so I can get rid of this knee pain. Then I can get really enlightened. It was quite some time before I recognized that what the teacher was talking about, and in fact, what the Buddha had been talking about, was my knee pain. You know, an unpleasant touch sensation in this moment. How was I relating to it right then? Not after I took care of it, but what was my recognition of it, my awareness of it, my ability to be with it? And that doesn't mean we never do anything about anything. I mean, certainly we do. Meditation isn't about collapse or or passivity. But we understand the nature of things. We come to understand the nature of things by being able to be with our experience, to see it for ourselves, to know it as clearly as possible. Then we can make decisions, not just driven by the habits of our mind. We have every possibility, no matter what our experience is, to be with it really differently. And from that basis of awareness and love and compassion, be able to be very different in the world. There's an understanding, there's an intelligence, there's an awakening that happens when we can actually be with what's going on rather than simply be moved about as various elements out of our control arise. And that's why we talk about sitting. Because it's that dedication to really trying. And it's a very radical thing to be with our experience. For some people... It'll be sitting. For some people, it'll be walking. For some people, it'll be both. But there's something about that dedication that's really very important. Because then you find that it's actually almost like a skills training that seeps into the rest of your life so that you can differentiate between what is actually going on and what you are making of it. There's a word, I don't know if it's come up in this retreat um, from Pali, which I really like a lot because I think it sounds like what it means. The word is papancha, which is proliferation. It goes on and on and on and on and on. It's like it was funny the other night for me when Joseph was speaking and he said he had a story to tell about me. Um, The first time he ever said that in the story, as you know, actually really wasn't about me. It was about him and (laughs) wanting to give me the story that was about faith and then not wanting to give it to me so he could have it for himself and then wanting to give it to me. You know that story? (gasps) That one. So the first time he ever revealed that uh, in a, a Dharma talk, we were teaching in New Mexico together, and I was sitting there, and he said early on in the talk, Later on, I'm going to tell a story about Sharon. So I was listening really carefully. <laughs> and then my mind just exploded. Is he going to tell this story, that story, this story, that story? I'm sure it won't be that story, you know. <laughs> and then he got to the place about um, Sir Lawrence Vanderpost and all the luggage, you know, like amazing amounts of luggage. And I thought, no, he's not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> And one of the fixations of my life is how much luggage I have all the time, you know, and that I want to be one of those people who travels with just like, you know, a little knapsack, and and I never am. One of my friends actually got me a video one year on how to pack, you know, so much luggage. I'm sitting there listening, no, Joseph's going to tell that about me. I can't believe it, you know. My mind was just everywhere for a very long time because the story comes at the end of the talk, you know. And then he finally told the story, and I thought, that's not even about me, (laughs) you know? (laughs) That's about him. (laughs) You know, but our minds can proliferate endlessly. We make these worlds, you know, that are so huge, and we suffer from them. If we can at least practice some mindfulness every day, 
we can catch that tendency. What we come back to in the direct experience of the moment may not feel that great. It may be challenging. But it's a direct contact with what actually is. And we don't have to add to that, that huge burden of our supposition and our judgment and our projection. If we practice in that dedicated way every day, we will be much more able throughout the day to have that kind of sensitivity and awareness and care for ourselves, compassion for ourselves, not to just continually spin out. Many people have asked about how to combine the metta practice and the vipassana practice. And that really is a very personal thing. Some people will do some metta practice at the beginning of a sitting. And if we do that, then it does create a kind of um, kinder atmosphere so that as we are watching all of our experience come and go, it is with, with more care, more compassion. Many people will do some metta at the end of a sitting because it is an expression of the understanding that our inner work could never be for just ourselves alone. Inevitably, it is about our connection to others. Some people are intrigued or inspired by metta practice and want to just devote some period of time to that. And I think that's also fine. I spent, um, from the time I first learned metta or learned the Brahma Viharas um, in Burma in 1985, I, I then spent about four years just doing metta practice pretty much, whether I was sitting at home or, or on retreat. Um, and these days, mostly uh, when I sit, it really is a kind of awareness practice. And what I like a lot is to do metta in very informal ways, walking down the streets of New York or um, always standing in line in the grocery store, um, on the airplane, you know, different modes of transportation. Uh, I think it's an amazing thing just to see what happens. You know, again, it's not a sense of trying to force your mind into a mold or being like, you know, goody-goody or, or something kind of phony. But what an amazing adventure to be willing to see what happens when we pay attention to someone, when we open to someone, when we listen, when we care. So for all those neutral people that you come upon... What an incredible thing to actually pay attention to them in that way. And as always, it's really, really helpful to have a sense of humor about the various fears and hesitations and obstacles and judgments you know, that you will see arise in your own mind. Like For all those moments that it's really like, may almost all beings be happy, you know? <laughs> we have to be able to see that that's true and be able to laugh. I once was teaching, I like teaching a lot in um, cities, in non-residential metta retreats, because when people do the walking meditation, we just have to go out on the streets and do it, and then we come back. Um, I was once teaching in downtown New York, and when it came time for walking meditation, I went out with everybody, you know, and we just, we were just walking around the block. And so I was walking around the block doing metta, and I came upon somebody I knew was in the class, and so I smiled at them, and they smiled at me, and we had that kind of like secret love thing going, you know. And then I walked on, and I came upon somebody else, and I wasn't so sure they were in the class. And I looked at them like, I don't know about you, you know? Are you in the class or are you not in the class? And, you know, and then I walked on, and there was somebody else, and I wasn't sure about them either. And then I just had to laugh, you know, because here I was doing the very thing 
that the practice is meant to eradicate, you know, which is creating all these divisions and boundaries and the in-crowd and the out-crowd and all of that. There are many, many times that we just need to be able to laugh at ourselves, and that is a very helpful tool. So to practice one or both disciplines or, or, or methods is really very good. And if you don't practice metta formally, then I think to have it both as the basis of understanding of, in some way, why you are meditating at all, and to, to be able to recognize the possibility of bringing that energy into your encounters in a, a very relaxed and almost playful way. So we practice formally, every day if we can. We practice informally. And because of that, one of the gifts I think we get is the ability to remember what we really care about. Not to be so confused by the constant winds of change that is a life. Where we go up and we go down and people thank us and then they don't thank us, and you know, we get praise and we get blame. It's so much in the nature of things to have that, to be able to experience the pleasure fully and the pain and come alive in the neutrality. Now, sometimes people fear that if they meditate, everything will kind of flatten out into this gray, amorphous blob, and, and there won't be any feeling. But here's the Buddha saying that every moment is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And every moment we can be with that in a skillful way. To remember what we care about most. Because through all of life's changes and challenges, that is really our refuge. What do we have faith in? What do we trust? What's our aspiration? throughout whatever experience we're having. And I think when we do that, there's something that's quite a spiritual cliche, but I think actually becomes the truth, which is that life becomes our teacher. We have that sense of being engaged and enriched, made bolder, more compassionate, braver, clearer, by our life circumstances. And so everything really does become like a teacher or a teaching. I had this very funny experience pretty recently. I have a new guru. He's a real estate agent in New York City. (laughs) I, uh, as you can tell from some of my stories, have have, um, for some years been trying to spend blocks of time in New York City. I went there first to write faith, strangely enough, um, instead of the pristine, tranquil town of Barry, um, I went to New York, but it worked. Uh, and I go there to teach, and, and much of my time, each time I'm about to initiate a visit, has to do with finding a place to live. Um, so I uh, was home in Barry. Uh, there's a course that uh, Joseph and I um, teach usually every February. And I was teaching, and my first teaching engagements in New York City were beginning, um, I think, uh, the first week of May. And I was going into the city at the very end of February after these courses were over to try to secure a place to move into in the beginning of May. So I found a real estate agent online, and I called her. And uh, we talked about the area that I was interested in and, and so on. And then she said to me, she has a very, very broad New York accent, um, which I feel quite free to imitate these days because mine is getting broader all the time. <laughs> you know, people used to ask me if I was from Canada, and nobody asked me that anymore. <laughs> the more time I spend in New York... So then she said to me, so what do you do for a living? (laughs) And my heart sank because 
I thought, oh no, she's going to think I'm really flaky. I'm not going to be able to pay the rent. You know, she's going to think I'm so weird. And I said, well, to tell you the truth, I teach meditation. And she said, oh, that's so interesting. (laughs) What do you do? (laughs) So I said, well, we sit and we use the breath as an anchor for our attention so that we can be calmer and more centered. And then we use that space to look at all these other experiences. And she said, oh, that's so interesting. (laughs) Then we got off the phone and I, you know, was just teaching this retreat and the days were going by and I didn't hear back from her. And I knew, you know, I just had this one week, I was going to be in the city when I had to find the place, you know, for all spring, because I had all this teaching coming up. So I finally called her, and I was in some agitation. I said, well, you know, I haven't heard from you, and I just have this week, and I really have to find the place. And she said to me, Sharon, are you breathing? (laughs) (laughs) She is absolutely... My new girl. <laughs> she is. <laughs> I have one more story about her, which I'll get to in a minute. And that was a good moment, <laughs> you know, because, of course, she was right <laughs> that we can come back, I could come back, <laughs> to a skill, a presence that I was not actually accessing <laughs> at that moment. But there you go. So we practice, (laughs) to do better than that, (laughs) we practice as both uh, an expression of our great love and compassion for ourselves, because we can be happier than we might be just driven as we can be, and as an expression of love and compassion for others. Because one of the things we see when we look deep into our experience when we see the impermanence, we see the transitory nature, we see the arising, the passing away, the transparency, we also see that we genuinely exist in this fabric of life, which is interconnectedness, that no one stands alone and apart ever, really, that we have all come here together as this confluence of conditions, all the beings and conversations and relationships and influences, that is a part of this moment. And it's always so that this is the nature of the universe. And this is what we see when we look deep inside. We're not caught by the seeming solidity and isolation of our experience. We see that that's the truth. And so we practice very much in that spirit as well to honor that connection, to take care with one another, to be kind to one another. What a thing that would be in this world, just to engender some more genuine compassion and respect and ability to listen to one another. It would be pretty powerful. And so part of the practice is not just the formality of sitting or even the informality of bringing mindfulness and loving kindness into our lives, but it's using that wisdom and all that we learn and all that we come to know in how we live, to, to use that wisdom in how we relate to one another, how we speak to one another, the actions that we do, the care we have for one another. Now we're about to leave here uh, tomorrow, this place where we have created a community where people don't have to, you know, as I said in the beginning, bring all of their belongings into the hall, lest somebody steal it. And it would be quite something for each of us to leave with some of that commitment of bringing that into, into the world, to be able to engender a sense of safety, of trustworthiness, of care because of our own commitment to, to basic moral action or ethical behavior, to really care for others. <coughs> you know, the more we open to our own experience, even our own painful experience, 
the more we can understand how painful it is for others when they're afraid, when they're uncertain, when they're deceived, when they're harmed. And so naturally, not because of a a great sense of moral repressiveness or, um, uh, you know, kind of an authoritarian um, dictate, but naturally, you just don't want to do that. It's so painful. We come to a great appreciation for taking care with how we speak, taking care with how we act. Even when the impulse arises, we can bring the force of all of our wisdom to bear out of great love and compassion for ourselves and for others. So this is my other guru story. I rented this apartment, it's a fantastic apartment. She got me a great apartment too, besides giving me wonderful instruction. Um, up until uh, June 30th of this year. And um, I knew I was going to want to be back in the fall for a whole extensive period of time. So this apartment was the second floor, is the second floor of a brownstone. Um, And the landlord, the owner of the building, lived up on the third floor. And uh, they'd asked me just every month when I owed him the rent um, to go up and just slip it under his door. So... I went upstairs one day and uh, I slipped it under his door with a note that I had just written that moment saying, "Um, I don't know if the apartment is going to be free in the fall, but I'm very interested in renting it again and these are the dates. And I just slipped that under his door, went back down to my apartment, I was sitting on the couch and I had the thought, I wonder if this means I don't have to pay the fee for the real estate agent again. And that moment, the phone rang. (laughs) And I picked it up, and it was her. (laughs) I said, hello. (laughs) And she was chatting, how's your stay, what's going on? And then we were just talking, and then she said to me, what did you call me about? And I said, I didn't call you. (laughs) But uh, she knew somehow. Uh, (laughs) So we hung up the phone, and I realized, oh, of course I have to pay the fee for the real estate agent, you know. That's the appropriate thing to do. And uh, which I like to think I would have come to even if she hadn't called, but being an omniscient guru, she did call. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we see many, many things go through our minds. And that is something we can accept about ourselves. We're afraid, we want, you know, we, we get lost. Many things will come up. But out of that kind of love for ourselves and for others, we can let them go. And we can live a life that is of much greater integrity. Our lives are so brief, no matter how long we live. And all those images that the Buddha used to try to express that, you know, life is like a rainbow, like an echo, like a flash of lightning in a summer sky, like a drop of dew in a blade of grass. No matter how many years we accumulate, it's like that. So why not have a life moving toward the good for ourselves and for others, a life that is inclusive, a life that's caring, a life that's loving, We do that just as we practice in our sitting. We do that one moment at a time. We do that knowing that if we make a mistake, we can begin again. We do that knowing that there will be times when we're distracted, when we lose sight of what we really want, and we can can return. We do that knowing that we don't need to punish ourselves. And we do that knowing that We are planting seeds all of the time. We don't know. When we try to make a change in this world, we try to be effective, we try to do some good, we don't know where it's going to end up. And without the great blessing of the Hindsight Meditation Society, we don't know. And so every single one of those lessons that we learn when we sit, 
we bring into our lives as we live. What we see in front of us in this moment is what we have to work with. And yet we know it's not the whole story. We have to do what we can right now and then let go into the next moment to see what happens. I first went to India in 1970. And just before I went, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, who's this very you know, great Tibetan Lama, came to Buffalo, New York um, on his first trip to the United States. And he was giving a, a talk at a, a nearby college. So I went, really excited. You know? and, uh, at the end of his talk, he asked for written questions. So I wrote out the question. I'm about to leave for India like in three days or four days, something like that. I'm about to leave for India to study Buddhist meditation. Can you suggest where I should go? And it happened to be one of the questions he picked out of the pile. He was silent for a moment and then he said, I think you had perhaps best follow the pretense of accident. And that was it. No guidebook, no directory. I think you had perhaps best follow the pretense of accident. Which, of course, now with the virtue of hindsight, I can see is exactly what happened. What I needed to do through all the times that nothing worked and it, you know, conditions fell apart and I couldn't find the teacher I wanted or all those sort of strange twists and turns, what I needed to do was hold fast to my intention, recognize that all I could do was the very next step. I didn't know where it was going to go. There was a lot of disappointment, and I just had to keep going. So as you're about to leave, I would urge you to stay in touch with that power of intention and be willing at the same time to follow the pretense of accident and see where that takes you. Let's sit together for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.